0: it's very hard like in the beginning like after these first couple of rounds where we really didn't think it was anything to do with me it's very hard not to harbor resentment towards your partner i mean obviously he can't help it he was born with it but it's just kind of like you think well you know if it weren't for this we'd are you know we'd already be pregnant it's like when when you're super emotionally vulnerable you want to point the finger
1: today we have blair nelson coming on um to talk about infertility and Multiple rounds of IVF that she endured to have her sweet little girl. It's really interesting because I just understand how difficult this may be for people to talk about, but I think she's turned something that's been so difficult into a way to really connect with other people and to open up the conversation around IVF and trying to conceive and infertility. Um, her Instagram fab IVF mama. It's just really amazing, um, and I think it's really created a community of people who can openly discuss infertility. And so I just really took a lot away from her episode of just the impact, not only mentally, physically, that infertility can have on you, the impact it can have on you and your partner, and just navigating that um, struggle. And so for anybody who's dealing with infertility, trying to conceive, um, maybe thinking progesterone could be there you know, issue um around conception and being able to carry, um, dealing with unbalanced translocation, which we discussed on a previous episode with Christina. I think this episode is perfect for you to listen to. And I think even for the average person, it was just really eye opening, you know, what people have gone through and currently go through um to conceive when they're dealing with infertility. So I hope you all take something away from this episode, and here is Blair. Thank you so much, Blair, for coming on. Um, Really excited to talk to you all about um, conception, specifically IVF, and not only your experiences, but a little bit about your podcast, too. I can't wait to hear about it. Um, So thank you for coming on. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. It's interesting. I've been on a ton of podcasts about talking about infertility, but not really about being a mom too so this is kind of a fun new treat for me so
1: thanks for having me you're welcome that's so cool that you've been on a lot of podcasts it's like one thing i'd love to do because i love running my mouth so (laughs) yeah me too (laughs) it's uh, it's cathartic to talk it out yeah exactly so tell us a little bit about yourself and um, how old is your baby and um, tell us a little bit about your spouse too Yeah. So, Hey, to everybody that's listening,
0: I am, my name is Blair Nelson. I live in Austin, Texas. I was born and raised in Texas, and I've been in Austin since 2005 when I came here for school. And I have a 14 month old little girl named Hadley, and she is just the best. Um, it was, it was quite the journey to get to her, but she's here and wonderful. And I'm just so happy
1: well i'm really happy for you um i know we had nicole on at the the very first episode talked a little bit about ivf and her experience there but what i've really learned i think talking to nicole is everybody's experiences with with conception ivf are all so different would you agree with it 100%
0: i mean no everybody's path with IVF, their diagnosis, this special sauce that ends up working for them. It's all very different. Like there's no one size fits all. And I think that's a common misconception is when people think about women and men going through IVF, they think, oh, well, it's a sure thing and it's just going to work. And that's not the case at all. <laughs> so. Yeah. So So tell tell us a little little bit bit about about your
1: journey journey, um, and kind of how that that started started with, uh, you know, you you guys decided decided to have have a child, child. like Like, what what exactly exactly happened happened, um, from from your end?
0: Yeah. So my husband and I got married about five, it'll be five years in September and we had known each other for a very long time um, before we got married. So we knew we wanted a family. We started right away and, you know, it was we were so naive and we just, we thought, Oh, maybe we'll get pregnant on the honeymoon. Like, wouldn't that be an amazing story? Um, obviously didn't happen. And about six months into our marriage and six months into trying to conceive, I started getting impatient because I'm very, very impatient, like just with (laughs) everything in life. And, um, you know, I was like, I really want to talk to my OB about this. So I went to my yearly appointment And I told her, I was like, you know, we've been trying for six months, you know, nothing's happening. Is there anything we can do? And so I was 31 at the time. And so I'm about to be 36 in September. And she said to me, no, I mean, you're, you're under 35. You're both generally healthy, no health concerns that we know of, you know, come back to me in 12, after you've been trying for 12 months and then we'll start, you know, digging deeper. And that was unacceptable to me. Cause again, I'm very, very impatient. So I pretty much fired her on the spot in my mind and walked out. And I was like, I'm going to find a new OB. So I was talking to some girlfriends and one of my friends had actually just gotten pregnant through an IUI. And um, she was just raving about her OB. And so I started going to him. She was just saying he's very proactive. You know, he listens to what you want to do. And that's everything that I wanted and needed at the time. So I made the switch and immediately he was like, okay, like if you want to start looking at things that could potentially be going wrong or just try to get ahead of some things. Here's what we can do. So we tested my basic hormone levels, like my FSH, my AMH. So FSH is a follicle stimulating hormone. Um, AMH is your, um, you know, basically is a marker for your egg reserve and, and then also we had my husband do a sperm analysis. So while all that was going on, we started, I don't know, it was kind of like this light bulb that went off in my husband's head like, "Oh, I have this both both of his parents are deceased. His dad had died like a year a year prior and so he has all the, you know, files that we all keep on our children and um he remembered there was some sort of medical something or other about his chromosomes. So we went digging through that, found it and to make a very long story short he has and they they knew in utero that he had a balanced translocation which means um we you know we all have 26 sets of chromosomes and two of his were flip flopped so um but perfectly flip flopped so like let's just imagine the ones jump to the 10 spot the 10s jump to the one spot and he's completely normal but what happens when you're trying to conceive and you have that particular diagnosis is that oftentimes more often than not, they unevenly flip-flop and you either experience repeat miscarriages, or if you are lucky enough to carry a pregnancy to term, the baby doesn't live very long. So right then and there, we were like, okay, well, we know that IVF is, you know, we went and sat down with a fertility doctor and she was like, I mean, you can definitely conceive naturally, but the statistics say it'll take about six or seven years. You'll experience a lot of loss. Yeah. So she, you know, in her office, like right then and there, she was like, right, IVF is really your path. And so it's interesting being married for seven months at the time and being told, okay, IVF is the way to start your family. So we skipped the medicated cycles, the, the Clomid, the IUIs, like we skipped everything and started IVF the next month. So that was in 2018. And uh, yeah, so that was kind of a lot for, you know a newly married couple again, like thank God we were really good friends for a long time before that, and you know, so it wasn't like something completely uncomfortable because we were very, very you know, comfortable in our marriage and we wanted kids, we were best friends before, and so we were able to have these difficult conversations,
1: but it's just not what you expect to hear, obviously. Um, seven months into your marriage, yeah, it's hard. Um, so that's really interesting because. There is another woman that I recorded with named Christina who couldn't find anybody with balanced translocation. And what ended up happening with her is she had miscarried back to back to back to back. And so um, they ended up testing the fetus to find it out. But why do you think a lot of information isn't out there about balanced translocation and what, you know, that means for couples is, do you think it's because the doctor's, really discourage you from coming in until a year or what do you really think it is now that you know more about it so uh, a few things
0: number one it's not super common um number two if you have it you would not know it I mean you're you live a completely normal life and I think this next generation of children like our children um Mm -hmm we'll be more informed with things like this because assisted reproductive technology, et cetera, is is much more talked about and kind of at the forefront of people's mind, fertility preservation, stuff like that. But, you know, I think those tests that those tests weren't available to our parents, you know, if, if a couple, a couple could have someone in a couple, um, you know, in the eighties, let's say one of them could have had a balanced translocation had no way of testing it, no way of knowing because they're completely normal. And, you know, unfortunately for a lot of those people, they just ended up not having children and um, because the treatment wasn't there. And, you know, it's kind of like, well, I guess we're just in, infertile. We can't have kids now. I mean, it's a shitty thing to go through, but at least we have this karyotyping testing where you can figure it out. And an IVF available to us to, you know, ultimately make, genetically normal embryos to transfer but i d- i think it's just an evolution of of the field and then just i think i think it's going to become more and more common for people to figure out what the heck's going on with their bodies now that we have all this testing available to us it's not so taboo um you know and all those things
1: yeah and i i totally agree with you i was listening to this joe rogan about like um you know, the technology for our kids and what that'll look like as far as them maybe freezing their eggs at a young age and being able to multiply eggs, like, you know, tons and tons of eggs. So that's what's really interesting. So um, where did things go from there as far as your IVF? Like, what was it like doing IVF for you?
0: So um, it was interesting because when we were sitting in that initial consult with our first doctor, we've, we've had two doctors. She was like, well, what cycle day are you on? And of course I'd been tracking my cycle like a crazy person, like we all do when we're trying to conceive. And I was like, it is cycle day two or whatever it was. (laughs) And uh, she was like, well, I mean, we could get started today because they typically start you at the beginning of your cycle. And I looked at Will and he looked at me and we're like, okay. So literally, I mean, again, ignorance was bliss. I was so naive. I had no idea in my mind, IVF, at that that moment, was a last resort for people, or something that famous people did to pick their gender or whatever. And I had, I knew nothing. You know, I never ever ever thought that I would be somebody that had to turn to IVF to start my family. And so we went ahead and did it. And honestly, like I was lucky because. I was a great responder to the stimulation medications that grow all the follicles that ultimately the eggs drop into that they go in and retrieve and make embryos. And so, you know, we had a very, very successful first cycle in terms of number of eggs retrieved. I think it was like 27, it was in the high twenties, which oh. is, is really good. And we had great fertilization. <clears throat> we had, we made a bunch of embryos. And when we went to go test them, so that was our whole reason for doing IVF is we had to test, a lot of people do IVF and don't test their embryos, but it's becoming more and more common to test them. Just Why to- is
1: that? Yeah, why is that more common to test them? Sorry to cut you off, but no, I no, no, it's a okay. It's question.
0: I think it's more of a, um, like you're trying to eliminate as much risk and what ifs as possible. So knowing that you're transferring a normal embryo, if, if it doesn't work, then it's kind of like, okay, there's something wrong with your uterine lining, the risk, your, your uterine receptivity to really latch on, you know, for that embryo to latch onto. If you transfer an untested embryo, it, it just, it leaves more questions out in the open. Like, was the embryo normal? Well, we don't know. Was it the embryo or was it the body? You know, So, um, I think it's just one of those things. And again, like it's expensive testing alone is five to $6,000. And so, um, when you're already going through an expensive cycle, so many women don't have coverage myself included. And so it just adds just, (laughs) it's like another slap in the face, right? Like how much more money can I throw at this thing? But I think it's becoming more and more common just because the testing not only has gotten better, it's more accessible. There's more labs. But also I think people just want to, it's more of a a reassurance, um, to know that a normal embryo is going into your body. So we sent our first round, we sent off 17 embryos, which is like anyone listening to this is going through IVF. is going to think like, wow, that's, that's insanely high. And it it was, but with my husband's diagnosis, about 25% of the embryos you test come back normal. So of the 17, we got four normal back. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not really that, that for any other diagnosis, it's about 50 to 60%. So it was, you know, we just knew, it, well, in hindsight, looking back, we should have known how hard it was going to be. But again, for us, it's like IVF, it's going to be the answer. It's going to work. <laughs> yeah. So we had these four beautiful embryos and. I'll kind of do a fast track here. So we uh, transferred the first one in 2018, didn't work at all. It was our best embryo, the most, the highly, most highly graded, beautiful, you know, under the microscope just didn't flat out, didn't work. Um, and then, you know, kind of thought, well, maybe it was just bad luck, which anybody going through infertility, listening to this knows like, this is the worst freaking thing for anybody to tell you is it's bad luck. That means, there's something scientifically that went wrong and they just don't know what it is. (laughs) Um, and then we, then the next month or maybe two months later, we transferred a second embryo and I did get pregnant and it was super exciting. We found out close to my birthday, close to our one year anniversary. And so we, um, had already had a trip planned to go to Europe, um, to celebrate birthdays. My husband's birthday is five days after mine, our one year anniversary and now the pregnancy. So, we went to Europe, um, came back and went to our appointment and the baby had stopped growing. And wow. so, you know, it was, I want to say it was like a Saturday, a Friday or a Saturday. So, you know, we really couldn't do anything, um, you know, to, I, I never know the right term for this, but like to r- rid my body of that pregnancy that wasn't viable with life. Um, so I remember for whatever reason, I had to go an entire week to work with basically a dead baby inside of me. Oh um, God. and then I had decided I was given several options. Like I could take, um, pills at home. Cause it was early on, it was like six and a half weeks. So it wasn't, um, super established or, you know, it, I wasn't far along so I could take these pills at home. I could, have a DNC, which is where they go and, you know, surgically remove all of the the pregnancy tissue and and the tissue of the fetus. Um, And I think those were really the main two options I was given. And I was so over being in exam rooms by that point. You know, when you go through IVF, you're in there every other day for monitoring appointments. I had been in there for ultrasounds with the early early pregnancy. And I was just like, I do not want to be in another fucking exam room. So I chose to do the pills at home um, which was pretty awful. Um, very traumatic, very like you just take these pills and just wait for your body to start cramping and it's awful. So, um, that happened. And then my doctor wanted to do, um, a hysteroscopy to make sure all the tissue was passed. Um, before we
1: transferred our third embryo. What is that? Why would they do that? So they just want to make sure everything's kind of clean in a way or what is that? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So basically what it is, is it can be done when you're awake and in office or they can put you under. It just depends on your preferences and what your doctor typically does. I actually went under um, because I had another procedure done at the same time. Um, which was, it's called an ERA or an endometrial receptivity assay where they go and take like a small biopsy of your uterine lining, um, and send it off to a lab. And they're able to tell, um, it's all a marker of progesterone and how receptive your, like progesterone should be at a certain level in your uterus when it's at at its max receptivity to accept an embryo. Um, and this test can tell like on the day where a, uh, a reproductive endocrinologist would typically um for the average woman transfer an embryo. Um, is that your your ideal window? Or do you need more progesterone or less progesterone to make
1: that environment like as perfect as possible? So Wait, I so that's them. hold on a second. That's actually really important, Blair, because for someone listening who may have miscarriages and think they may need progesterone, would that be something that would be good for them to ask, maybe possibly discuss with their doctor or who would be a good yeah. person to to for that, you know, to say they want that?
0: I would say there's a, a lot of reasons um or a lot Yes, I guess the answer is yes, but there's other things you can do too. Like if you're if you're not um seeing a fertility doctor yet, you're trying naturally, but like you suspect your progesterone is low, or maybe you've had your blood drawn by your physician and and they are telling you your progesterone is low there's other things that you can do um, to boost your progesterone levels without like going to these links of having this procedure like you can do at- home progesterone kits you can get progesterone subscri- or subscribe subscribe <laughs> uh, per- <laughs> prescribed to you <laughs> yeah. um, in the form of suppositories um, or progesterone oil which is a shot that you take in like your hip area. So if you're kind of in the beginning of trying to conceive and you suspect that that might be a thing, you can order at home progesterone kits. I think prove is one P R O O V. Um, there's a bunch out on the market now, but prove was like the first one. Um, and you can kind of monitor those on your own. And if you find an issue, go to your OB, tell them, you know, Hey, I've been tracking this. This seems low according to my research and, Um, what can we do to supplement my own natural progesterone? So that's kind of beginning stages, but if you find yourself in, if you find yourself doing IVF, like I was, and you are, um, having failed embryo transfers, especially with genetically tested embryos, then I would definitely suggest the ERA test because again, like it can tell them your exact window. I mean, for me, it was like, I needed 24 more hours of progesterone to get my uterus to the, the most receptive state. Wow. So yeah, it's, it's pretty wild. It's, I mean, again, it's all, and the ERA is pretty new. I would say it's like, you know, less than five years old and it's become becoming more and more common for reproductive um, endocrinologists to introduce that test when they're treating patients. Whereas you know, even when I was going through it, my doctor was pretty progressive. She's younger. She's only a couple couple years older than me. And she was a big proponent of it because she follows the science and the latest and greatest, but like some of the older doctors, more old school, thought it was unnecessary. But my second doctor who I feel like he's almost 70, he has now started doing it all the time. So, um, and then to answer your other question about hysteroscopy. So a hysteroscopy can be, Um, for several things, mine was to make sure that there was no scarring from my miscarriage that there was no, you know, anything else going on in there, make sure all the pregnancy tissue was gone because if there's anything in the uterus, that's not just like your fresh lining, it can really impact implantation, whether it's a, you're trying the old fashioned way or whether you're in treatment, fertility treatments. Um, so it just kind of, you know, and and not to sound like graphic, but basically what they do is they go in and if there's anything there, they scrape it out um, and get everything nice and nice and fresh in there. And th- it's another, um, a lot of people have hysteroscopies too, who have like endometriosis or who have fibroids or polyps, all very common things. And um, the hysteroscopy is an easy way to get in there and remove that um, to give you your best chances um, of conception.
1: Wow. No. This is great information for people listening. Um, yeah. really good information. So what happened after they did these procedures? Did it, did it work the IVF or how many more cycles did you have no. to go through? <laughs> this is crazy. No.
0: We did. I did the hysteroscopy in November or December of 18. And then February and March of 2019, we transferred my third embryo in February didn't work using the ERA results, mind you. So like we had like, we had honed in on my receptive window, didn't work, the fourth one didn't work. So after that didn't work, we were out of embryos. So we're Mm -hmm. back at square one. So we did a second round of IVF, like a full round where they go and do the retrieval, grow the embryos, test them, all that not so fun stuff. And, um, it was a really bad, it was a really weird cycle, very bad. Like I told you, I got 20 something eggs. The first time I only got seven eggs the second time. And we were like, what is going on? Um, it was just very strange. So, um, and we didn't get, I think we sent one embryo off for testing and remember the first cycle Mm -hmm. I sent 17 off. So I I only mentioned that because so many people get Um, so many people going through treatments and doing IVF specifically get so upset when they have a bad cycle and there is, there is a, there is such thing as cycle variability. Like you can have one amazing cycle and one completely shitty cycle and then another amazing one. So I only say that to encourage people to keep trying if they can emotionally and financially, you know, um, because it does, it can bounce around. So then, um, we left my first doctor at that point, not because of the failures, but because we were unhappy with the clinic itself. Um, just the administrative side, how they were mm. handling my medications, it was causing more stress and they're really supposed to help you be not stressed about that kind of stuff. And, um, we switched over to my older doctor, um, that I mentioned earlier, because our, in our minds, we were like, we clearly have a difficult diagnosis clearly there's something more going on than just my husband's translocation. We've burned through four embryos. We've done testing uh, like on my body. There's something else going on. Um, so now we're like, okay, we have male factor infertility. Now we're dealing with female factor infertility that's unexplained. So we wanted to go to somebody who had a bunch of experience. He started his clinic in 1984 before I was born. (laughs) And so we felt, we felt really good and had so many, um, amazing recommendations, um, from other people to go to him. So we switched to him and I will not bore everybody with all the details, but we did three more rounds, full rounds of IVF.
1: Three more Um, rounds. So, okay. Question for you. How is this emotionally? Because for people to be doing multiple rounds of this IVF, like in my head, I'm, I'm thinking like that has got to be where you're like, I'm just going to give up. Or how are you, what were you thinking in your head with doing all these rounds?
0: I mean, it was pretty fucking awful. I, we started seeing a couple therapist um, that uh, specializes in infertility with couples. And it was, it's very hard. Like in the beginning, like after these first couple of rounds where we really didn't think it was anything to do with me, it's very hard not to harbor resentment towards your partner. I mean, obviously he can't help it. He was born with it, but it's just kind of like, you think, well, you know, if it weren't for this, we'd are, you know, we'd already be pregnant. It's like when when you're super emotionally vulnerable, you want to point the finger and you just want something to be mad at something to blame it on. And so, you know, and then meanwhile, so I'm dealing with that. My husband's dealing with like, almost like grieving his own genetics. Like what, why, why is this how, like, why was I born this way? What, and sees, sees me going through all of these procedures and surgeries. And he hates that, that quote unquote, he is putting me through this. So it was a lot of emotional stuff to overcome. And I remember sitting down with some girlfriends for dinner one night and it was in the middle of all this. And one of them was like, y'all have to go to therapy Blair. Like y'all are acting fine, but we know you're not. And this is Mm -hmm. so much, this is so much. Y'all have to talk to somebody. So that really, really did help because You know, when we were going through all these treatments, either Will would want to talk about it and I wouldn't, or I'd want to talk about it. And he wouldn't, we didn't have the safe space to go where we knew, okay, this is an hour where we're going to talk about all the hard things, you know, the hard things, like, how are we going to afford this next round? What happens if this next round doesn't work? Are we going to look at donor sperm? Are we, you know, et cetera, things like that. And those are really heavy conversations to have when you're like sitting down for dinner or, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) just trying to enjoy each other's company. But, uh, so yeah, emotionally, it was really hard. There were so many times where I wanted to quit so many breakdowns, so many, I mean, I'm taking, you know, I got on Zoloft in the middle of all this, like it was a lot. Um, but the one thing that kept me going, people ask me this all the time, like, what, how did you keep going? And number one, I just want to say that like IVF is a privilege. It's very expensive. Um, Luckily, we were able to figure out how to financially afford it, but I just want to recognize that a lot of people cannot, and a lot of people don't have coverage. And it's, it's a a big problem in this country for sure. Um, But my one thing that I held on to is after every failed round, after every failed transfer, I would just look at my doctor and say, can you tell me? If it makes scientific sense to keep going? Like, will this happen for us eventually if we keep going? And the answer was always yes. And I told my husband, as long as the answer is yes, I want to keep going. I might have my moments where I'm like, I just want to quit, you know? And of course, Mm -hmm. and and him too. Um, But I was like, ultimately, when I can like finish my pity party for myself and pick myself back up, I always wanted to keep going. And he was the same way. And it was kind of like, the seesaw, like when I was down, he was up when he was down, I was up and we just kind of kept pushing each other through and letting each other lean on one another um, when we needed to. So
1: that's tough. That's really hard. I mean, I appreciate you being so vulnerable sharing all this stuff because I think for people who are listening, dealing with multiple rounds of IVF, I mean, I'm sure they're thinking the same things you are.
0: Oh, for sure. I mean, it's an insane amount of emotion that goes into everything, but yeah. So when we switched to my, my new doctor, just to round the story out our, uh, third and fourth rounds, we did send off embryos, but they were all genetically abnormal. So we were just on the wrong side of statistics for so long. And our fifth round that we did during COVID, um, I did a bunch of like research and, you know, advocated for myself. And I had told my doctor, I was like, I really think you have me on too much stimulation medication. I feel like my eggs are frying and I want to go back to the protocol I did with the first retrieval I ever did where we made the most embryos ever. And he was like, I said, I know that wasn't your protocol, but like, I just feel like that's what I want to do. And he said, okay. And so we did, we made four beautiful, normal embryos. And, um, my first transfer with that second doctor in August of 2019, nope, 2020, excuse me, um, worked. And I mean, I could sit here and talk for hours about every little test we did and every medication he had me on. I mean, it was basically a kitchen sink approach because he told me in his office one day, like we've tried everything in the rule book, Blair, and nothing's working. And so what ideas do you have? Let's put them together with my ideas and let's just try it. And um, a crazy cocktail of, of, um, you know, just steroids and all sorts of things ended up working for us. And our daughter was born in May of 2021. And we're getting ready to transfer one of our remaining three embryos here in September.
1: Oh, my God. It's like, this is just like, I applaud you because I think for women, dealing with all these things. I mean, I have my own battle to deal with during my pregnancy, but it just is like, I look at women, like I cannot believe they're doing all this. Like, it's just, you got, you have a lot of strength.
0: Well, thank you. And I feel like, you know, what people don't think about is it isn't just doing IVF. It's yeah, you're having to do this and still be a wife or a partner to somebody, still be a sister, a daughter, a professional, if you work, and it's almost like you live this double life, your IVF life and your real life. And <laughs> it's okay. it's hard when they collide, you know?
1: Yeah, it's um it's like the intensity of is is a lot, the emotional toll of it is a lot. And one of the things that I've been curious about is weight gain through this process with IVF. Wow. What is the deal with this? So um Did you gain weight with it? Oh God.
0: Yes. So I started IVF in the best shape of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I weighed, you know, I'm, a, I'm like five, nine. Um, I weighed 150 pounds. I like w- was super toned. I was working out like a couple times a day, like felt really good about my body. We started doing all this and it just kind of slowly, it creeps up on you this weight because you're, you're injecting a massive amount of hormones into your body every month when you, any month you do a retrieval. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, just bucoos of estrogen, which makes fat, you know? And so I think I ended up and it was, it was hard work too. Like I was working my ass off, um, physically like exercising, going through all this because I kind of started to see it creep up when I finally got pregnant with Hadley, I was 165 pounds. And so I gained a solid 15 that I just never dropped. And that was hard. And I remember sitting in my first doctor's office, she was out of town with her partner, um, was seeing me for a consult, um, to go over some of my numbers. And I told him, I said, what I was like, I'm starting to gain weight. You know, what can I do? Like, what, what can I do to manage this hormonal weight gain? And he literally, literally looked at me in the face and said, count calories what I was like fuck you like, like yeah you have no idea you're a dude you've never gone yeah. through this. <laughs> like you know go fuck yourself <laughs> i was so pissed and i told her my doctor that and she was like well that's one of the reasons i ended up leaving his clinic like a few months <laughs> later like <he laughs> good just, you know but right. anyway it's, but it's it's brutal and then you know i'm still not back at my pre-ivf weight and um I'm at my pre-pregnancy weight and maybe a couple pounds lighter than that. But I mean, it's hard. Uh, (laughs) It's it's rough for sure.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing about that because I was always curious, like for myself, because some of my friends have said they gained a lot of weight during IVF, but I kind of was a little too nervous to ask. I didn't know if it was too sensitive of a subject. Um, Oh no. Tell us a little bit about your podcast and as we close out, like how to find you. And then also, um, Give a, give a piece of advice for someone listening who's maybe dealing with multiple rounds of IVF and um, just to kind of close out uh, the podcast with you, Blair.
0: Yeah, for sure. So I, when I had my miscarriage in 2018, I, I had nobody in my life in my immediate circle that was going through it. And I just felt so alone, so isolated on an island by myself. And so I turned to the internet, to Instagram, to try to find some people that were going through the same thing as me on a whim. I started my old handle, which was fab, fab fertility, like fab FAB fertility, even though I didn't feel fabulous. I don't know what I was, why I did that, (laughs) but, um, so I started that account and over the years, it's like, it's just really, really grown. And I ended up a few months later starting a podcast, the fab fertility podcast. So that is my podcast. I haven't done new episodes in a while. I'm kind of shifting into a fab mama podcast. So more, more to come on that. We'll see. Um, it's just a lot harder for me to feel, um, you know, a topic for a different day, but I I think when you're really entrenched in infertility community and then you have a baby, it's not that people aren't happy for you, but they're still in pain. And so it's hard for them to come to you as a resource as much as they did before, because they're still hurting and they know you have a baby. So Mm but I had my, I've had my podcast since 2019. I ended up meeting another podcast host, um, who hosts infertile AF, uh, the podcast, and we became business partners and started a fertility rally, which is a membership community, online membership community and virtual events platform for anybody going through infertility. So we have four support groups a week. We host, um, several virtual events throughout the year just to provide education and support for people. So, you know, infertility sucks for sure. And um, that's like one of the most popular hashtags you'll find online, infertility sucks, but it's completely reshaped my life and like who I am as a woman. I have a small business now. I have this podcast and I really just tried to make the most of it, um, like, you know, turn my pain into, into passion or whatever they say. <laughs> And, um, but yeah, so you can follow me, um, at, at now my new handle on Instagram is fab IVF mama. Um, but my podcast is still fab fertility and I have hundreds of episodes, um, some funny, some educational, some with doctors, some with other infertility warriors telling their story just kind of all over the board. So if you're looking for support, um, my DMs are always open. My podcast obviously is available and I would love to help you any way I can.
1: Thank you so much. Like I, um, I really applaud you. Like I see you as a huge, huge um, example of strength and I appreciate you coming on. And um, I think I'm sure someone will reach out about infertility to ask you some questions. So thank you so much, Blair. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, just I know we're closing out here, but my one piece of advice for anybody going through infertility um, or difficulties trying to conceive is to really find your support system that you trust, that you feel like you can be open and vulnerable with. It doesn't have to be your family or your friends. It can be an online community, but I feel like when you have a forum to go and be honest and open and ask the hard questions and say the things that you don't want to say to anybody else because you're embarrassed or whatever is so incredibly important. And it's very freeing. And um, yeah, that would be my biggest piece of
1: advice. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, It's been really educational. um, And I think you really shared some raw details. So it'll be a huge benefit to someone listening and a lot of education for me too. So thank you. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Moms on the Mic with Mariah. We will see you all back here again next Monday. Go ahead and follow us on Spotify, Apple, and any major podcast platforms. On Apple Podcasts, rate and review us. Follow us on IG, YouTube, and TikTok at Moms on the Mic with Mariah. And let me know what issues you guys would like to hear on the podcast and any feedback. And also, if you'd like to come on and tell your story, go ahead and throw me a DM. Thanks again, and we'll see you guys next Monday, another story from another lovely person. See ya.